It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is David G. Schwartz. He's author of At the Sands, the casino that shaped classic Las Vegas, brought the Rat Pack together, and went out with a bang. It's published by Winchester Books and available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about David, go to dgschwartz.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at DrDave702. And Dave, welcome back to the show. Always glad to be back. It's always fun talking with you and in, in the innumerable number of books that you produce over the years. And your current one is fascinating, not only because it's possibly the longest title in the book title industry, or seems to be, because it's a long, <laughs> long title, but yeah. it, sa- it says a lot. So why did you decide to do a book on the sands when you had so many topics to pick and you've written about gaming and you've written about personalities, etc.? Well, I think the Sands is the most famous casino from that classic era of Las Vegas. And I think when people talk about classic Las Vegas, you know, a lot of people call it the Rat Pack era. And where were the Rat Pack? They were at the Sands originally. So I think the Sands has a mystique that really suggested it as a topic for a book. And when you started down this road, and you are a very thorough researcher, did you give yourself a block of time to research before writing, or did you research and write at the same time, so to speak? A couple hours for research, a couple hours for writing. Started it with more doing more of the research first and sort of compiling sources. And by the end, I kind of switched gears and I was basically researching as I was writing. So it kind of went from the one to the other. I think, you know, for me at least, if I'm just gathering sources and everything, by the time I'm ready to write and I have everything, half the time I've forgotten what I started. Because <laughs> it's, so, it's so, so much stuff. Like getting into it a little bit, and, you know, at least getting stuff for that chapter, then doing it chapter by chapter. I'm always interested in how authors and writers compile interviews and research. So, for example, for people that you talk to, did you just take notes or did you record with a digital recorder or how did that work? Or was it a mix of the two? It was a mix of the two. Some people I recorded, there were a lot of interviews that were already available. Thanks to UNLV Special Collections and Archives, they had tons of interviews, so that was really good. And I was also able to talk to a few people. Some of them are, are recorded, but some of them I did not. And of all the people that you talked to, who had the most impact on your way of looking at the sands? Well, there, I mean, I talked to a lot of people. One of the really interesting people I talked to was Lisa Medford, who is also an author. She was a showgirl. She was the first nude showgirl in Las Vegas, and she just had some very interesting things to say, not just about the Sands, but about Las Vegas in general. So I really got a kick out of talking with her. And there's just very, kind of a lot of details about behind the scenes stuff that you wouldn't usually find. So how did you find these people? In other words, you were talking about researching at Special Collections, which clearly you have an affinity for because you were a director there for many, many years. And so you knew what the resources were there to research. When you went through the research, were you surprised to find that there were X number of people still alive that could talk about the Sands? Um, I don't think I was surprised. I'm pretty glad about it. It's always good when you find somebody who was that link. Another person who I talked to who was really influential was a guy named Ed Walters, who was a pit boss at the Sands for many years and worked directly for the people running it. So when you 
find somebody like that and, and you meet them, I think that is really an invaluable help because they can give you that insight that only people who are really there would have. Through all your research, you looked at the sands a number of different ways. From your point of view, based on your research and your own knowledge, what was the impact of the sands in Las Vegas in its heyday? And then what was the impact of the sands on modern day Las Vegas, today's to Las Vegas? Well, I think to some extent they're the same, which is entertainment. Every place in Las Vegas had entertainment, but the Sands really took it to that next level. Jack and Trotter at the Copa room at the Sands really put it up there where this was going to be major, major stars that were in that room. It was a really intimate room. were never that far away from them, never that far away from the stage, you know, never that far away from the action. So that created an expectation for Las Vegas that this is going to be something exceptional. That's interesting because as you get further on into the 70s, Las Vegas loses that a little bit and you shift from the headline entertainers to the reviews. And I know I came across some of your writing about this, some of the, you know, in uh, the course of researching the books, you know, so you know about this process. But really for a while, those reviews were where it was going and it was the kind of packaged shows. Then in the past 20 years or so, we've seen that switch back towards headliners. So it's interesting how that changes. I think the other thing that the Sands pioneered with, and this was in the later days, was conventions. You know, after Sheldon Adelson bought it, he built the Sands Expo Center and really opened up a lot of people's eyes in Las Vegas about just how much money you could make with conventions. Yes, he did have that foresight. He actually ran one of the largest conventions before he, he bought the Sands. Yeah, Convex, which right. is how he basically ran it and saw, well, the people running the <laughs> you know, the people running the hotel are the ones who make the real money, and I went around the hotel, and so they... It's interesting because the Sands wasn't the first hotel that he tried to buy. He, Him and his group had bid on the Dunes before when that was bought by Masao Nangaku. So he bid on that, and then the following year, he got the Sands. When you looked at the overall picture again of the Sands, and we talked about the impact, and the entertainment impact is very important because today... There's discussions about, okay, how do we bring entertainment back given where we are with the coronavirus? And some suggestions that it may be a return to a small, intimate showroom, such as the Sands Copa Room. Yeah, we're in a weird space now because we've created the expectation for this kind of spectacle with all the production values and pretty big shows that you can't really do if you're limited to just 50 people. You know, I just don't think you could do that. With First of all, you might have more than 50 people in the production crew and, you know, on stage. But second of all, you know, it just, I don't, you would have to be so much money for those tickets. I don't think you would have many people. But I think there is, you know, you, you, we can look at something going back to the smaller crowds if there's a way to do that where they actually can make money, you know, entertainment never, well, for many years, wasn't really a big money maker. It was a lost leader for a long time in the Strip. So I don't think they want to go back to those days, but it's a question of having that intimate experience, but of course, keeping the social distancing. It's a tough challenge. Do you think that this may actually help downtown Las Vegas? In other words, create a small, intimate showroom. There's one somewhat intimate, which is at the plaza, but maybe create a new one in one of the other hotels and have that available for major performers if they could work out the the finances of it. Well, we've got Circa that's still in the last stages of construction, so maybe they've done something there. And I think that's, you'd have to build something new 
to comply with a lot of the social distancing. So that's definitely a possibility. But you could convert a ballroom into a performance venue, too. And I think that could work. You know, for many years, the entertainment was a big differentiator between downtown and the Strip. And I think it's this just highlights how crucial it is to the Strip to get the entertainment and the conventions going again, which are the two things that the Sands pioneered in, because I think without those, Las Vegas is still Las Vegas, but it's not quite the same. You talked about the Sands and entertainment and the Rat Pack, because that's part of the title of the book. Again, it's called Mm -hmm. At the Sands, the casino that shaped classic Las Vegas brought the Rat Pack together and went out with a bang. The entertainment aspect of with Jack and Trotter was important. Would the Sands have been as important without the Rat Pack there? I don't know. You know, it still would have been prominent, but I don't think it would have had quite the mystique that it does today. And I think you can see this by comparing it with the Desert Inn. And for many years in classic Vegas, until Caesar's Palace opened up, you'd have to say Desert Inn and Sands were probably 1A and 1B or 1 and 2 for the top joint in town in Las Vegas. You know, if you were going someplace and you were a high roller, it'd probably be the DI or the Sands. And I think entertainment was a big part of that for the Sands, where Desert Inn also had great entertainment. And you could see a lot of really good shows there but they didn't have the Rat Pack. So people today don't really talk about the Painted Desert Room. They talk about the Copa Room. And you recently did a a panel presentation at the Mob Museum, and that brings in the mob, obviously. How important was the mob influence on the Sands and vice versa? Uh, Mob was pretty important with the Sands. I mean, that's where a lot of the money came from. That's where a lot of the know-how about how to run the casino business came from. So I think that was pretty important. For that time, of course, then once you get into Howard Hughes buying it, that diminishes a lot. But I think in the early years, this was really key. And without people putting up that money, you don't have the sands. When Hughes came in, do you think, based again on your research, so it's it's not your opinion based on nothing, it's mm-hmm. your opinion based on research. Do you think that when Hughes came in, that it put a damper on the, for want of a better term, the creative aspects of Las Vegas and the sands particularly? some extent i think also you were that era was going to end anyway you know no matter what i think he was doing it buying it just made it much more dramatic you know they're not you know nothing lasts forever but i think you did move from it being relatively informal to a lot more formal became less like okay the people know me so i can get twenty thousand dollars in credit to you've got to fill out this credit application to get the twenty thousand dollars in credit it was a more formal approach in fact isn't that what yeah. got sinatra into a snip yeah i mean although we can there's a lot of speculation about what was going on behind the scenes of sinatra i read carl cohen's fbi file carl cohen of course was the casino manager who punched sinatra in the mouth and you know one of the fbi's informants said well you know, the informant said that the whole scene was staged, although not staged to the extent that Sinatra would be punched in the mouth. So this one informant, kind of going with the conspiracy theory here, said, well, yeah, they kind of were going to stage this public falling out because Sinatra literally within hours of getting punched in the mouth by Carl Cohen signed with Caesar's Palace. You know, literally, I think the press release went out at 9, 9 a.m. that morning and the altercation was around 6 a.m. So That's pretty quick. This yeah. had been, clearly, this had been in the works. They didn't negotiate that in an hour. So, yeah, clearly right. that had been, right. had been in the works. So, yeah, there's, I don't know, though. It seemed like it was genuine animosity there, at least for that night. And certainly that was not anybody's finest hour when that happened. 
You mentioned Carl Cohn's FBI file, so it was either you either did a FOIA request or it was at Special Collections or was somewhere else. Can you share us with us where you got it? Yeah, I did a FOIA request, and I also was received a copy of another file with him in it from another researcher. So I kind of I had a little bit of a double dip there. Oh, that's good. Now, what yeah. happens? And I always meant to ask you this over the years when you have finished writing your book and yeah. it's out and you have all this research, do you keep it for a while or do you donate it to, for example, special collections at UNLV? For people who don't know what special collections is, it's part of the library system at UNLV. And it's a really excellent resource if you're interested in all kinds of things relating to gaming in Las Vegas. Well, some of it I would donate. So like a lot of the oral histories go to special collections and archives. Stuff like the clippings, like news clippings, they're not that into, so that I wouldn't donate. The FBI file, you know, I don't know that they have that electronically. That might be a donation to the that might be a donation to the mob museum then. Yeah. I mean it's pretty interesting stuff. The FBI files in general, there's a lot of redactions. They're very difficult. There's not an index or something, they're not that easy to read. But they're fascinating just because you get these little tidbits in there. So that, you know, like that thing, like when somebody was saying that, yeah, we think they staged the whole thing, but they got carried away and Sinatra lost two of, of the caps in his teeth. Yeah. So, and it was recorded contemporaneously, so that also gives it a sense of drama, I would think. Yeah, where they at first nobody knew what was happening, really. And it's kind of funny because the media did play a big role in this. Don DeGilio, who had butted heads with Sinatra before, I think kind of liked sticking the knife in because his lead to the story was uh, Tony Bennett left his heart in San Francisco, but Frank Sinatra left his teeth, or at least two of them, in Las Vegas. And, <laughs> and, uh, and that was, just for our listeners who may not know, Don DeGilio was an editor at the Review Journal at the time. Yeah, and he, you know, they, he, had had, he had been feuding with Sinatra before, and Sinatra feuded with most of the press, I think. That was his default. So they, they didn't get along, and yeah, he kind of, so a lot of people, I think, kicked Sinatra when he was down. And he, it's, it, it's hard to overstate how popular Carl Cohen was, not just in Las Vegas, but nationally for what he did. You know, literally, I saw this was a news item in a New Hampshire newspaper. There was some residual resentment of Sinatra, I guess, in those days. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, today we kind of remember him as the you know, Rat Pack, but at, when he was active, there were a lot of people who didn't like him. And they felt very strongly about him. And a lot of other people thought he was you know, unfairly malign, but he was an excellent singer, and he was also pretty good at making enemies. Sometimes it goes with the territory. So let's take a break. Yeah. <laughs> My guest, yeah. David G. Schwartz, he's author of At the Sands, the casino that shaped classic Las Vegas, brought the Rat Pack together and went out with a bang. It's published by Winchester Books. It's available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about David, you can go to dgschwartz.com and you can follow him on Twitter at DrDave702. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. There's something new at the Neon Museum. The emerging technology of light mapping brings old signs back to life. Forgotten artifacts of our past that once blazed in the Las Vegas night are reanimated in a dazzling immersion of sight and sound. You've never seen anything like it because there's never been anything like it. Brilliant, a Neon Museum experience. Performances nightly. Join the experience now at neonmuseum.org. 
now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with David G. Schwartz. He's author of At the Sands, the casino that shaped classic Las Vegas, brought the Rat Pack together, and went out with a bang. It's published by Winchester Books and available at Amazon and all the usual places. And for everything about David, go to dgschwartz.com and you can follow him on Twitter at, and most people say, oh, but I say zero, at Dr. Dave 702 Dave, what don't we know about the Sands that we should know about the Sands? Well, I think I found out just how involved they were with constructing Las Vegas as we know it. They were severely, like, deeply involved in the promotion and just the length to which they would go to try to cultivate the media, bringing reporters here, bringing TV people here, radio people here. That was really interesting. You know, also the way that they, they were able to sort of submerge their personal differences and run the casino successfully for quite some time. I think that's, that's a testament to everybody involved. And also the fact that it didn't disappear once Howard Hughes bottled it. It kept on going. In a lot of the, you know, one of my quibbles with the way people talk about the history of Vegas and the history of gambling in Vegas is that we seem to go from, you know, here was the classic era, here was the Rat Pack era, and then we have the mega resort era. And people don't really talk about that period in between, you know, the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, which I think is when a lot of people had their careers and a lot of people came to Las Vegas and there's a lot of really interesting stuff that happened then. It did. I arrived in 1978 and I was able to see some of the old regime, so to speak, as well as how the changes were coming in. And it was a time when you could still pick up the phone and within one phone call get hold of pretty much anybody in Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's definitely not the case now. No, not but, at all. You know, well, I guess it all depends on who you are. Right, well, that's true. Usually <laughs> but, it takes me, uh, yeah. it used to take me one call. Now it takes me two to three calls, but eventually I get through. So yeah. <laughs> it has changed. I do want to give a nod to Al Guzman, who was one mm -hmm. of the first people I dealt with when I moved to Las Vegas. And as you talked about how they were involved in publicity, he was very instrumental in helping me out when I first got there and to connect me to that world. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because we think about, you know, in the 70s, he was saying, yeah, all the corporate suits have taken over. They're starting to take all the fun out of it. And it's funny because today, I think a lot of people think if we, if we went back to the way things were in the 70s, oh, it'd be perfect. Right. But he right. was very aware that they were changing the nature of it. And he, you know, also was, he really believed in cultivating the media and as a PR person, you weren't just kind of pushing out content, which I think is something today that any people in social media and people in any kind of public relations of today, I mean, could, could listen to this advice. You know, he said his job wasn't just to push out the content, to push out the releases. It was really to cultivate the media and, you know, befriend them. And Yes, and for, and for people you know, who, who don't know why that's important, I can give a little bit of a perspective, and maybe you would agree or disagree, David, but... Mm -hmm. The reason you wanted to cultivate the media was because there will be that time or times when everything is going fine and all of a sudden something happens that's negative to a resort or a casino or hotel. And it's not to dismiss the negativity, but it's maybe to modify it a little bit and to shape it a little bit if you have existing relationships with the media. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. And that's something that Al Freeman had done. You know, he was the first publicist at the Sands, you know, Al Guzman did it too. And I think that's really where uh, I 
you know, I think probably you've gotten away from that a little bit. And I think that's important to remember just for everybody. It's not just, you know, cause I know in my writing, a lot of times I'll just get press releases mailed to me and like, well, what's, you know, what is this? <laughs> right. right. It's kind of, it's better when you have that relationship with somebody like, Oh, Hey, well, here's something interesting. So yeah, I think that would, I think people would do well to listen to his advice. And also too, Al would let you know about something, not necessarily exclusively, but would give you a heads up on something that wasn't released publicly yet. So you felt like you were in the know and that helped also cement the relationship as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also comes down to access where reporters you know, need that access and being able to facilitate that is, is really great. When you look at the SANS, are there lessons from the operation of the SANS during that whole time when the Rat Pack was there and how it shaped classic Las Vegas? But were there lessons to be learned that we could use today, or is it just because it's a different world and you can't, other than what we just talked about, by the way, in terms of public relations and publicity? Yeah, you know, I think you can apply some of them. Obviously, it's not going to be the same. You're not going to do, you know, I couldn't see the LBCBA saying, okay, let's get 50 reporters from Chicago to come here and we'll spend a weekend bringing them in a junket. And, you know, I don't know if that approach would work. But I think the general idea that you do things for a reason and ultimately the reason is to make money but you're not obsessed with making money in every single transaction you know extracting the maximum amount of money that you can from every customer and every transaction and i think we've seen the wisdom of being a little bit more lenient in the backlash over paid parking in the strip which has now gone away at least for now but it's interesting that when las vegas reopened when the casinos reopened on the strip the first thing they did was do away with the paid parking. So clearly they had gotten the message that this was not something that was a good idea that people liked. And, you know, yeah, theoretically you are there to make money, but I think what they were good at in the old days was they knew that most of their money came from the casino. So, okay, even if we don't charge the absolute maximum weekend to see Frank or see Sammy or Dean, we'll still make it up. You know, and I think that, that's a good attitude to have. Right. What happened through the corporate era and to today is that they looked at all elements of the casino and hotel operation and said to themselves, every element has to pay for itself. So, for example, in the realm of room rates, in the realm of dining, in the realm of entertainment, it all had to make a profit. And so you didn't have that ability to give a break on, for example, as you mentioned, the show because you know you're going to get it back in the casino, they're starting to look and they're seeing, well, even retail. So you're seeing all these different sectors bringing in revenue. And sometimes the gaming revenue is not as strong as some of those other sectors within that wheel, so to speak. Yeah, and I think Sheldon Nelson showed how this is true on the flip side, too, where for a long time, casino bosses in Vegas were absolutely resistant to conventions. And you know, one of them even said, when Sheldon bought the Sands, well, now he's going to see how awful it is to have 100,000 of his people in here, and I'm glad he's going to feel our pain. And, you know, with, with that, like, okay, when Comdex is in town, when we have 110,000 people in here to see this computer show, yes, your casino revenues are going to take a hit. You might want to have a couple of the dealers stay home, but you're going to get a much better room rate and your you know, restaurants and everything is going to go through the roof. Yeah, plus a convention rental and everything yep. else. Yeah. yeah, so like it's overall you will still see a profit and it's not your usual 
business model, but it's still profitable. You, know, you can go from one to the other, and that's one of the reasons why Las Vegas is hurting so much now, is they don't have that midweek boost from the convention. Yes, I remember that change that happened where most of the casino guys hated the conventions and they just didn't want to see it. But as you said, Sheldon came in and showed them that it could work very well. Looking at the Sands and its history, are there one, two, or three, probably more than three, but if you could highlight maybe three, of the key people in its history that really had the most impact? Well, I think we've already talked about Jack and Trotter. We've talked about Carl Cohen. I think you also, the original founding people, Jake Friedman, who was the owner on paper, who was from Houston, who was sort of the front man for it, I think also did a lot towards making people in Las Vegas feel welcome there. And, you know, since he came out of Texas and he wore the cowboy hat, he seemed like more of a Westerner, so you didn't just have these New Yorkers coming in or guys from Cleveland coming in. I think that really helped as well. And um, another guy who was involved was a guy named Doc Stature, who was a, I don't know, organized crime-affiliated type guy, sort of like Meyer Lansky. He worked with Lansky, but he was also pretty big in his own right. And he was one of the big money people behind the Sands in the early days. So I think he was also pretty important. Do you think, though, that the symbiotic relationship between, and in your book title, it obviously mentions the Rad Pack, but the symbiotic relationship between the Sands as a resort and entertainers that performed there, whether they were part of the Rad Pack or not, that that really helped the identity of the Sands and really shaped what it would be because you had that high component of entertainment? Oh, I think absolutely having all that entertainment helped. And, you know, it wasn't just that they performed on stage. It's that they were in the casino, so you could literally gamble right next to them. And I think that was an attraction for a lot of people because where else in the world can you say that? So I think that the entertainment really had a value. It was bigger. The whole was bigger than the sum of the parts. Okay. Th- now, this is a challenging question for you, David, mm-hmm. because given your background and, and your knowledge and all the information you've researched over the years, is that kind of resort, the Sands, is that kind of resort ever possible in today's Las Vegas? You know, I think, I think it is. I think it's a question of empowering the people who work there to take risks. You know, like Jack and Trotter, not everybody he signed was successful. Some of the people he signed bombed, but that didn't mean that he got fired. That meant, mean that he meant that he just thought more about it and, you know, went back to somebody tried and true. So I think a lot of it is the people running the casinos, whether it's private owners or whether it's corporations, realizing that there's always an element of the unknown and you have to give people that freedom to take risks. And then if the risk doesn't, you know, now I'm not saying if your entertainment person is just signing dud after dud after dud, you let them go on indefinitely, but you've got to figure it's kind of like popcorn you know, nobody stops eating popcorn because a couple of the kernels don't pop. Got a couple duds. And it's like anything else, you know, you're going to have a couple duds no matter what. It's just, you know, not fixating on them. All right. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been David G. Schwartz. He's author of At the Sands, the casino that shaped classic Las Vegas, brought the Rat Pack together and went out with a bang. It's published by Winchester Books. It's available at Amazon and all the usual places. And for everything about David, go to dgschwartz.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at DrDave702 or 702, however you want to do it. David, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Ari. It was really great. Great. Thank you. See you next time. 
You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.